Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, member of Pucifer and a singer-songwriter in her own right, Karina Round. Karina, how are things? Uh, things are great. <laughs> you know, all things considered, feeling pretty good right now. So the new Pucifer uh, album, it's, it's really rooted in this extraterrestrial undertone. What really brought about this for this album? Well, honestly, you'd have to ask Maynard that stuff because the extraterrestrial thing, nobody really knows the answer to that. Maybe not even him. The answer the answer is out there. Well, what did you think when Maynard first said he wanted you to, to essentially join in the band kind of full time? Well, I first met Matt and Maynard and started working with them about 10 years ago. I I drove up to Arizona with Matt and actually my first, the first thing I ever did with Pussifer was sang on Humbling River and that was kind of my audition. Um, and I guess my, my involvement on that song was pretty heavy but, you know, generally over the years um, I think I just gained a little more of a trusting collaborative relationship with everybody and kind of just you know it, the, the synergy just turned into something that's a little more balanced and I just naturally kind of ended up um, you know being more involved it wasn't really a conversation it was it was just it naturally organically led to this to this situation well speaking of matt he had these beats kind of like floating around for a little bit did you hear them before maynard started putting vocals onto it or do you come in a little bit later even when he started writing stuff to start inputting vocals yeah i mean for uh for this record matt started putting together the music probably around five years ago when we were on tour for the last record. Um, and so what he does is he kind of makes a Dropbox folder and puts his sketches in there, musical sketches. And then, you know, both Maynard and I have access to that and we can hear it. And uh, just when we have time, when we have a moment, we can marinate in it a little bit. And then usually around harvest, which is, July to around July to October, um, Maynard will start putting vocal melody and rhythm ideas down and sometimes lyrics that soon. And as soon as he does that, you know, I just am all over it. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I get to hear it first, but I don't, I'm not unleashed until there's a, there's a melody at least. So was this recording done, uh, was it finished at the end of 2019, or did it kind of bleed into 2020 as well? Uh, Let me think. Yeah, it definitely bled into 2020 because I remember we were, Matt and I were recording, I was recording vocals at the studio when the lockdown happened, and we had to stay home. And it was so frustrating. I was right in the middle of it. I was on a roll. 
And, you know, as with everybody on the planet, um, we were just kind of, our hands were tied and we were waiting to, to finish this record. So, yeah, it definitely bled into 2020, but a lot of stuff was done at the end of 2019. You know, everyone keeps asking about apocalyptical and asking if it was about the pandemic and this situation, etc. But uh, he actually recorded vocals to that in uh, August of 2019. Well, recently Maynard did say that he contracted the virus himself. Um, did that play any role into the recording process or were his vocals pretty much done by that point? Uh no, actually, I, I just heard about that about um, probably about three or four weeks ago. Uh, it, 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 it had no effect because we didn't know about it. He didn't tell us. He kind of, you know, I think he just didn't want to. <laughs> he's not the kind of person to, to just sing and shout about it and he also knows that if there's something he doesn't want to be known in public then he just you know he doesn't tell anybody so in terms of his vocals it you know we were still recording stuff probably march and april and none of us knew about it well, how much preparation had you guys done for the upcoming tour that was going to be attached to this? And how much input do you really have um, on the live show as a whole to begin with? I pretty much have zero input. I mean, I'll be there for some of the conversations and I'll blurt out ideas and and details and sometimes they'll get used and sometimes I'll just get a polite smile and, you know to move on but for the most part for the crux of it Maynard will explain a theme and his general idea and vibe and you know which is usually crazy and then Matt will work as much into it as the show as he can and maybe have to dial it back in areas and you know He's pretty much the brainchild of the sets and how the show looks. And, you know, well, he'll work with Maynard on ideas that he has. But, you know, I'm just fly on the wall for most of that. And I get to blurt out my opinions. Well, I want to take you way back now. What were some of the formative artists, film, music, even painters and sculptors that were really part of your formative youth? Well, I was born and raised in a place called Wolverhampton in England uh, to a single mother in a pretty poor, very poor area. And, you know, luckily for me, music was just, I, I would I can't even say it was a huge part. It was my childhood. My my you know my house was filled with music all the time, many different ways. And you know, thankfully, I was listening to. For those years, the soundtrack of my life was Neil Young and Bob Dylan and early Roxy music, Led Zeppelin all the time. 
you know, those things are just in my blood. Those are the things that come out without me even trying. And then I discovered, you know, Radiohead, obviously. Kate Bush was a, a huge kind of aha moment for me, particularly Hounds of Love. That record kind of cracked my mind open, especially when I became an artist and a singer. Um, just the way she uses her her voice and the way she will use, in quotes, a backing vocal to um, basically you could just change the way you think about your day in a, in a moment. So that was, you know, big influence on me. I was around 14 when Nevermind came on the radio, and for me, you know, it's it's not something I I listen to now as inspiration, but that feeling of just the heaviness and and Kurt Cobain's voice was just it just infused me, you know. Uh, in terms of art, I had to find that stuff when I actually used to work in a bookshop in in Wolverhampton when I was. 17 to 21 maybe and it wasn't even a good bookshop it was kind of a, a a weird bookshop we would get just crates and crates of books that that other bookstores didn't want <laughs> it was uh, like an overstock bookstore and that's how I discovered you know Mapplethorpe and Egon Sheila who had a a huge emotional effect on me. I'll never forget standing in the middle of the bookstore. I was meant to be stocking shelves, and I came across this book and and opened it, and it was a, a book on Egon Sheila and just, you know, becoming really emotional for the first time ever, you know, being made emotional by visual art like that for the first time when I was around 18 or 19. So, you know, just a lot of kind of... <sighs> searching you know once my mind was opened that was around the time also where the internet started <laughs> so you know I, I discovered at that point that I could really search out things of interest so most most of that stuff started with just looking into it you know searching it out my my school wasn't necessarily uh affluent in the creative arts, so to speak. And it wasn't until I got older and and moved moved out of my home that I I began to actively search out art and museums and and things like that. Probably not even until really I came to LA until I came to the United States where there's so much in, in you know incredible stuff. You started to do um, opening gigs for, for pretty relevant artists like Ryan Adams and Coldplay incredibly early in your career. Did it almost feel to you like you were gathering this success or even this Rolodex incredibly early and quicker than a lot of artists around you were? Yeah, I think I I was kind of blessed and cursed at the time with a and a, a friend who used to put on shows in Birmingham, which is 
near Wolverhampton where I lived at Ronnie Scott's and he would put on a festival and he booked artists like Ryan Adams and, and Coldplay um, and he would just put me on as the opener whether it was a good fit or not <laughs> and at that point I was still writing, you know, meandering songs that were seven minutes long, learning my craft as a songwriter, learning my boundaries as a vocalist. I mean, at that point, I just discovered that I had this voice that, you know, had a certain kind of fluidity and and power, and I was literally just using it all the time. I had no idea when to stop. (laughs) You know, I was luckily... Early on, I had a lot of a lot of shows where I could just basically learn how to stand on stage solo with an acoustic guitar and hold an audience. And you know, I also did a tour with uh, Miles Hunt, who was a singer of a band called The Wonder Stuff in England. Which I don't know how how they traveled over here, but whether they were even known or famous, but I was 17 years old and it was just, there's nothing like that for an education in how to have a tour. So I have that, you know, I had that rock solid foundation in getting on a stage and just being able to handle whatever happened in any, like my guitar string broke in the middle of the song and sometimes I would just keep singing the song and restringing the guitar at the same time or you know I would just take off the guitar and finish the song in a different way or you know if there was feedback the mic wasn't working I would just step off the stage and stand in the middle of the room you just learn how to take on those those situations and and that was a a great education for me but yes I think it's possible I'd never thought of it before really you might be right that it was a little bit too early for me to have that kind of be on a stage with that kind of profile I think I probably could have done with a little more seasoning first you know <laughs> well, what- but you know it's not like it's not like I was being signed to a major label at that point. I pretty much put I put my first record, which is called The First Blood Mystery, which is incredibly raw. I don't know if you've heard it, but, you know, it's just, it's basically this mess of a, a 17, 18, 19-year-old just expressing, you know, everything that I had ever thought since since I was old enough to have a cognizant thought and you know just I hadn't had the restraints or constraints of you know working in studio with like all these high profile 50 year old men or being told that songs have to sound a certain way to get on the radio and you know all of that bullshit I just literally can I swear on your podcast of course please (laughs) okay I had just gone into the studio with my friends and just basically let it all hang out. And I had a friend who ran a a record label in London, a small, tiny label called Animal Noise. And I just remember having a conversation with him on the train one time about, you know, it would just be great to get this out. I was just so hungry at that point for, 
for the whole idea of being an artist that made songs and put them on records and put them out. It was my dream because it was my formative years was surrounded by this. And to me, that was just the most, the purest, most beautiful form of expression and living your life. And he was like, I'll put it out. <laughs> and that's how the first, that's how the first record got released. And, uh, you know, and from there it led to Chia. Well, if <laughs> you, you, you did ask me if I had, had heard the first album, I saw you um, on the first tour when you were opening for Pucifer and you absolutely, oh, yeah. you, you blew me the fuck away. And I bought, yeah. all, I, oh, thank you. I bought all of your stuff and I feel like the first blood <laughs> mystery and slow motion addict were the two albums that really stood out to me. They are so raw, so powerful, so emotional. I, they are two absolutely fantastic albums. And did you? That kind of blows my mind that you chose those two. Because for me, uh, when it comes to the spectrum of my releases, those two are at the opposite end. I know, and and I think that's what, <laughs> I, I think that's that's what's brilliant about you as an artist because you can go and do something like the first blood of mystery, and follow it up really not that much later with slow motion addict. And you're getting a wide range. It's a it's a musical journey from one album to another if you listen to them back to back. So did you yeah. did, did you notice that a lot of Pucifer fans were gravitating towards you and and checking you uh, checking out your solo stuff, or do you still not really see a lot of people in that world gravitating towards your your solo stuff? No, actually, I I did. There was a lot, and I was surprised because I had heard that, you know, the, the main fans and the tool fans were just not very accepting of, of openers. And I guess maybe I had the, the privilege, so to speak, of being in the band with him too, so maybe their minds were a little more open to me. But um, the, the feedback from Pussifer Friends was, was great, um, and still is. I've, I've always been treated very well by a person. I'm, I'm curious. Thankfully, I'm so really, far. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm really curious now, though. What would you say that your favorite solo album is then? Uh, that's interesting. Well, I, I, I really, I loved Tiger Mending, which was the last one, because I really, that was my escape from the clutches, I guess, if you want to put it that way, of of the major record label. And I, right, be, right as soon as I left the label, I made Things You Should Know, which is an EP, which, you know, was just my therapeutic little escape bubble. And then, you know, I, I endeavored to make the bigger, more produced record that I wanted to make, which was Tiger Mending. And I really feel... I feel like I honed the craft a lot for that record, and I, I'm very proud of, of some, most of the, the lyrics and, and how it turned out. I think it's a great record. But I can appreciate, for instance, the first Blood Mystery, when I look back at that, 
I could never write that record now. I just couldn't. And I didn't appreciate or realize that at the time. And I also went through a period of just being embarrassed of it because it was so exposed and so raw. And, I, you know, it just, as you get older, it just makes you realize how important it is to just create all the time as an artist because having something, that postcard, I guess, that snapshot is so important. And, you know, like I say, it's something that I couldn't create now. And I wouldn't want to, you know, as a, as a older, mature lady, like singing songs like that, it's just not pretty. It doesn't really, it doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm grateful that I have that. And then also the disconnection. I, I mean, I don't want to blow my own horn, but I think all of them have their own, you know, a good and good and bad traits. For me, Slow Motion Addict was slightly traumatic experience because it was the peak of the major label involvement and the people trying to steer the ship in a certain way and, you know, being a loudmouth female artist who will fight for her vision I just got labeled a difficult artist you know which is it's unfortunate and I think I think you're right I think it it turned out the best that it could but it was a difficult time of my life because I really felt like I was being veered away from my path do you think that your move to L.A. on that album also had a heavy impact? Yeah, probably bigger than I thought at the time. For some reason, I just, I, I look back and I remember people just being blown away that at such a young age, I just up and left my hometown and just kind of planted myself in this essentially other planet. And I was somewhat unscathed by it and not traumatized at all. I guess it's just I'm lucky enough to be a bit nomadic in that way. So, and and always had to, since I was a kid, always had to constantly feel like I was moving and changing for better or for worse, you know. Um, so, so the move... Yeah, it, it just felt like my life... I, honestly, my, I moved for music. I moved to make the record. I moved to pursue my career as an artist. So I was just... You know, I had the blinkers on. Anything else emotionally that was happening. I mean, looking back, it, it was probably a little more affecting than I, I realized because I was... Like I say, it was a difficult time and... I was probably beating myself up with chemicals and alcohol a little more than I'd liked. So maybe that was a, a side effect of some emotional things that I was going through without realizing. But, you know, it, like I say, I was doing it for my vision. So, it, you know, it didn't really, didn't really occur to me that it was a, 
big change or, you know, a bad thing. What do you think it was about? Well, do you think it was you or your music that was really gravitating and latching onto these hard rockers? Guys like Billy Corgan, Maynard, Wes Borland. You seem to really flourish when you get together with the hard rocker. How does this come about all the time? You're not, if you listen to your solo stuff, you wouldn't automatically say the hard rock community is going to take Korean around in. Yeah. I have no fucking idea, honestly, <laughs> because I, well, here's one, here's one idea. My second record, which was the disconnection, um, had a really gothy cover. And that was the first record that Interscope released here. And it was, uh, you know, I guess that's the record that Wes Borland heard and really liked. And it was, it, you know, the, the single from that record is called Into My Blood. And it was pretty rock. And it's got that, it's got a Susie and the Banshees vibe, I guess. And I'm kind of squealing and doing the rock and my power, using my powerful voice. And I think those were the songs that were being pushed forward and you know and also when I was playing live that's I think what translates most and I don't know I guess the rockers just like my shit <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> it's been a weird journey in that I, I I do obviously I like that that that's a that's one side of my expression of myself, but there's also the acoustic vibe of the six minute songs with you know more it's more lyric driven than rhythm driven and there's that side of me too and i I labor over lyrics a lot that that stuff means a lot to me and I just I've never never really been comfortable with just sitting inside one genre one style of expression so maybe that's worked against me throughout the years but uh it's really it's the only way i can keep going i think i would be bored if i had to stick to stick to one side of the street is there a genre or an artist that you would really like to delve into? Just like an artist to work with or a genre that you've never really got a chance to really put your stamp on, essentially? Uh, well, I think in like my fantasy world, I'd be Cardi B. <laughs> <laughs> Just writing lyrics like that sounds like so much fun and just letting it all go and doing whatever the fuck you want that's my fantasy life in reality though no no not really so, I mean, I, so, so, I, so we're not gonna get a wet ass pussy from Karina around anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You never know what's in the works <laughs> right now. 
could be like a weird uh, synthesizer acoustic guitar version of something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Your music has been involved in a lot of film and television work as well. Is this something that you'd like to do more of? And have you ever thought about doing composing for, let's say, a television show or a film? I have thought about that. And yeah, I would like to get more of my music in film and TV shows. Not least because that's really the only way someone like me earns money these days. Um... But also because, you know, film is a, it's a, the perfect medium for putting over a feeling or, you know, subconsciously getting that emotion into the listener or watcher's brain. Um, and I always love seeing or hearing my music for the first time of a picture because it, you know, makes me hear it differently, which which is great. Um, in terms of composing, I, w- I would love to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult world to get into, especially if you're not known for that kind of thing. Um, and, you, and I'm in L.A., where they, everybody is that does that kind of thing. So I think it would take just a stroke of luck for, for me to get composer work on the kind of movie I would want to do it on. What was your time like uh, singing for Tears for Fears? Oh, it's great. I mean, I've known those guys for 15 years or something, uh, particularly Kurt. And I remember, you know, I came to L.A. and I was doing all the stuff with the Motion Addict that we talked about. And... My, have you ever seen Secrets and Lies by Mike Lee? That rings a bell. Okay, well, it's one of my favorite all-time movies, but also it's kind of like my childhood. If anyone wants to know what my childhood was like, it's it's that movie, pretty much. And I came to L.A., and it's just like this weird fantasy, different planet, snow globe with no snow kind of fantasy Hollywood set place. And I was just so removed and just, I was an alien. And Kurt Smith, who is the singer of Tears of Fears, is just, he's been here already for 20 years and he's just so down to earth and he was you know, he's English, obviously, and he's just kind of my, he was kind of a little bit of a lifeline for me to my memory of, of what life used to be like. And I I sang on one of his songs for his solo records, and I kind of said as a joke, half joke, you know, if you ever need a vocalist when you go on tour, just... Let me know. I can do that stuff easily. Like, never thinking that it would actually happen. And then, you know, one day I got an email saying, can you record yourself singing this song in your house? <laughs> and it was actually two songs. It was Woman in Chains and Bad Man song, like the two hardest songs to sing. And I just had to sit in front of my camera and, and sing the songs. And 
Yeah, and then I just went and, and toured with them. And it, that's been a, a 10-year thing, too. Although they don't tour very often. They tour, like, once a year or once every two or three years. So it's, um, you know, it's not something that interferes with my my own solo or political work too much. And that's why I can continue doing it and they're good friends. But you know, that one of my favorite albums when I was a kid was The Hurting. That was that came out when I was two or three years old. And in terms of production and and, and cool synthesizers, that's the era, man. That those are the those are the years, those early eighties and that album was big for me. So to and of course songs from the Big Chair too. As I was growing up, those were like the soundtrack as as a as slightly older, and they never stopped being soundtrack either. You could turn the radio at any given moment and shout is playing on the radio, or you know everybody wants to rule the world. Those songs are just completely timeless. So getting to sing songs from the hurting that meant so much to me when. And I was growing up and discovering music for myself. is a is a pretty cool thing. And do you see yourself staying in LA, or is there somewhere else that you'd like to also try out living for a little bit? Yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I I'm in LA right now because I have family here. I have a three year old son, and the, you know my partner is here, and his family is here. I don't really have much family left in England, so, you know, there are a few people that I miss, but I can't see myself moving back there unless some crazy set of circumstances hint, hint, in the next month or so (laughs) means that I have to get the fuck out of the country. But, um, yeah, I mean, I love to travel. I love to be moving. I, I love it. I would love to... You know, without disrupting the life of my son too much, I'd love to to live in as many different places as possible. LA, you know, it's great for me right now, but if there were if there was a place that you know was my perfect place to live, this certainly wouldn't be it like oil and vinegar a little bit for for me in LA. I kind of, I came here temporarily when I put the record out and you know it's like Hotel California. You can check out but you can't leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that song is so true. Where are you? I'm I'm Where are you? I am in Calgary, uh Canada. Oh. I like Calgary. Got a good coffee spot. That's what I remember about Calgary when I played there. Which, but I have friends in in Toronto, for, and I, I love that city. I love Toronto. Which uh, which coffee spot? Out of curiosity, I just I don't remember. <laughs> but I I just remember cities by if they have good coffee, and you know you can write them off if they if they don't. <laughs> You know, when you're on tour, those kinds of things are important. Okay, so what do you do when when you're on tour? What do you really want to get 
out of a city each time? Is it just the coffee or do you like try to hit up a museum or a record store? Is there something that you really like to do during the day on tour? Yeah. I mean, since I had a kid and I was taking my kid with me on tour, that completely changes the experience being on tour. As you can imagine being out with a toddler or, you know, little baby um and you know in that situation you just need to find a fucking park and go there and stay there until the little thing falls asleep that was my main aim the last time i was on tour because i was with a child but a, a lot of times people think that being on tour is just like having a, a three-week or six weeks vacation, but you're in a different city every day. And, and sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's, you can be in Berlin in one of the coolest cities in the world and you just, ideally you want to go to museums and walk around and it's beautiful weather and see cool stuff, but really what ends up happening is you stay in your hotel room and order room service and take a bath and nap and... <laughs> You know, you have to, I think I have, you have to be pretty disciplined to get up every day and go fully experience the city that you're in for an hour, the hour or two that you have there before you have to go to soundtrack. But yeah, ideally you like to find, get up, find a good coffee spot, good breakfast spot. If that's really your time of the day where you get to do what you want to do, maybe walk around, experience the city if it's good weather and find a museum if there's a great one or a good exhibition that you want to see at the time. And yeah, record stores, all that stuff. If it's close by, um, just you just try and um, absorb it as much as you can without being too precious about it. I think being really precious about having the best possible experience in every city that you go to while you're on tour is just exhausting. <laughs> you mentioned some shit that could happen within the next month. Do you, as an outsider living in America, do you think that they're doing enough to get a certain person out of there? Uh, I think I think the people that want him out have done everything they possibly could to get him out if they were going to get him out before now, you know? And I think in terms of the election, it's just a shit show. It's all just smoke and mirrors to induce polarization. And, you know, I think if you you really look at what what people want it's you know apart from the far left and the far right it's it's kind of the same thing it's just it's funny i watched a movie called the candidate a couple of nights ago with robert redford great movie and yeah it's a really good movie and it's from like was it the 60s or the 70s uh, i believe early 70s don't quote me right. on that and I just was blown away because the conversations and the 
debates and the things that they were talking about in that movie, it could have been today. It was the same stuff that they were arguing about. And it just makes you realize that all of this, all of these conversations that are raised, particularly before an erection, I almost called it an erection, (laughs) (laughs) particularly before an election, are just to drive everybody crazy. And it just so happens right now that they have the, the platform of Twitter with, you know, every individual has complete anonymity and can say whatever they want in that second um, it's just, it just started a shit storm. I, I don't know if, if it can get any better right now. Um, so yeah, in terms of, I, I, I think, I think he probably should be voted out. I think that would be, I think that would be a lot better for the country and the world and for people as individuals, but you know, there really are real, actual people who very, very strongly believe that he's the best thing that ever happened to the country. And it's astonishing. I, I, it blows my mind every day. And I, you know, I, I can't look at it for too long because I, I feel the dark worm starting to eat at my insides when I open Twitter and just... I barely have to look at it. And, you know, I'm being pulled by the algorithms and losing my sense of self, in me, like, within five seconds. <laughs> and I, I can see, you know, when I do that, it just becomes so apparent how the country has become so polarized and so crazy. Does it shock you that the same thing is happening overseas as well and the right the right especially is taking an uprising in England I mean how, why would it be shocking yeah. nothing sh- nothing shocking nothing shocking <laughs> anymore like seriously since it's a good point what I've seen what I've seen in the last four years I would just be dumb to be shocked by anything at this point I just think, you know, I mean, I I don't like to talk politically at all, really. But I, I think people just need to realize that with this kind of freedom, I think it was, I saw Aldous Huxley recently say something like, obviously not recently, an interview with him I saw recently, with great freedom comes eternal vigilance and I, I really do think that it's up to us as individuals to take what we see stand back um, look at the information analyze it and you know intelligently decipher it and try to figure out what's the truth and what isn't and not just be emotionally ignited by the things that we hear people see and the things that we hear and see people say. It's up to us, you know, it's up to every individual to look for the truth 
and to not just take it as the truth because it really seems like it is in that moment. Go looking. Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up? Have you been working on anything during this pandemic? Well, like I said, I have a three-year-old tornado. <laughs> so for the past six months, I've basically just been on suicide watch. Um, so it's not when the first when the lockdown first happened. Like most people, I think it was just like yes. I don't have to do anything. I can work on the Pussifer record and work on my own record and clean up my house and empty out my garage and, you know, all of that. And it turns out that I had less time than I ever had before to do anything but run around after a two-year-old. Um, but, yeah, I, have, I bought um, an art. 2600 at the behest of, of Matt Mitchell made me do it and um, been experimenting with that and you know I have been playing a lot of piano in the last few years which I've never done before I kind of got bored of, of writing on the guitar I got bored of where my hands went so trying to experiment with new sounds and new instruments and yeah whenever I can and working on that stuff but you know right now we're still pretty busy with the Pussifer stuff well Karina I'd like to thank you so much for coming on here today it really means a lot thanks for me. having me I'm I'm such a big fan of you I hope everybody checks out all not not only the new Pussifer record coming out October 30th but all your old solo stuff it's it's thank really you. cool if you like Pussifer I honestly believe Everybody should check out your, your old solo stuff. It's great. And I can't wait for anything new from you to come out. Thank you again. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. Hear Karina Round on the upcoming Pusifer album, Existential Reckoning, out October 30th. And see her live that night, October 30th, with Pusifer performing a special live stream show in the Arizona desert. Info for that can be found over at PusiferLive.com. This concludes our broadcast day.